Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief, to give you an inside look into Minnesota child welfare legislation, policies, and practices happening right now in Minnesota affecting abused and neglected children, as well as those who work with or care for them. It is our goal that this podcast is educational, informative, and bold, increasing collective knowledge on these issues, as well as raising our voice to speak up for the needs and the safety of vulnerable Minnesota children. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. The blog for this week is entitled, How We Got Five Decades of Anti-Child Policies. In 1972, the Annie E. Casey and Edna McConnell-Clark Foundations began promoting intensive family preservation services. The concept here was that short-term supports would divert families from child protection. According to Harvard Law School's Elizabeth Bartholet, it didn't work. Similar foundation-driven programs followed, including in the 1990s Racial Disparities Initiative, then Differential Response, or as it's known in Minnesota Family Assessment in the early 2000s, and currently the Federal Families First Act. Now, the first three of these ideas relied on parents working with child protection voluntarily. Unsurprisingly, most parents opted out. And then that fourth one eliminates group homes and residential treatment centers, services which some children really, really need. These theories have been harming children now for 50 years, and so we need to return policymaking to government managers who can be held accountable for results rather than to foundations that are far removed from daily operations. So I'm currently working on a paper for the Mitchell Hamlin Law Review and have been reviewing the history of policy and practices in child welfare in the United States. And what I was reminded of in doing this homework is that attitudes towards children like the ones in these initiatives go back at least 50 years. So in the blog, I referenced an article by Harvard Law School professor Elizabeth Bartholet. She's the founder and the faculty director of the Child Advocacy Program at the law school and has become an important researcher in this field. Her article is called Differential Response, a Dangerous Experiment in Child Welfare. So you can tell what her point of view is just by the title. And by the way, there's a link in it, uh, to it in the blog if you want to read it for yourself. In one of the earliest sections of this long article, she gives a history of similar parent-friendly initiatives to differential response. And they have some things in common. First, all of them were created and promoted by a large private family foundation. I mentioned Edna McConnell-Clark in the blog, but the Annie E. Casey and Casey Family Foundations have been responsible for the lion's share of these initiatives over the last 50 years. So this trend 
began in the 1970s when the Clark and Anna E. Casey Foundations began promoting this Intensive Family Preservation Services program. The concept here was that intensive support services provided to at-risk families over a relatively brief period of time would divert them from the child protection system. So ultimately, intensive family preservation services waned in popularity due largely to criticism that it didn't adequately protect children, and also it just failed to achieve its main goal, which was family preservation. Subsequently, in the early 2000s, a coalition that included Annie E. Casey and Casey Family Programs formed what was known as the Casey Alliance. This group launched the Racial Disparities Initiative, which attempted to address racial disparities in child welfare and the child welfare system. Their work referenced the findings of the third National Incident Study, or the NIS-3, which was published in 2001. So the National Incident Study has been authorized by Congress about every 10 years since the 1970s, and it performs a, a kind of a big national analysis of child protection and foster care. But the Casey Alliance largely ignored the findings that poverty is a significant driver of child maltreatment, and they probably should have devoted more attention to that uh, and to the role of systemic racism in producing concentrated poverty in African-American communities and indigenous communities. But instead, they solely blamed the disparities on racially biased decision-making within kind of the four walls of child protection and foster care. So to quote one pair of researchers, it said, they said, if left unaddressed, misinterpretations of NIS data will continue to misinform policy, cloud the issue of racial bias in the child welfare system, and obscure the ongoing role of concentrated poverty and driving racial disproportionality. So again, kind of a laser focus on what these foundations think the problem is and ignoring things that don't fit into uh, into their uh, pre-described picture. So a huge example of confirmation bias. And by the way, there's footnotes uh, in the narrative that uh, is the kind of the script for this podcast, which give all these citations here so you can look them up yourselves. So then the third in this series of Casey-led initiatives is differential response, which is a set of child welfare practices that Casey Family Programs developed in the early to mid-1990s, and they piloted initially with California and Missouri and Florida. Uh, and Casey then helped the latter two states launch the first statewide differential response programs between 93 and 95. So we've talked a lot about differential response, which again in Minnesota is known as family assessment. So I won't repeat that analysis here. You can look at other blogs and and, uh, postings and podcasts for that. Although, you know, we'll bring it up as we go through this, uh, this podcast a little bit from time to time. Then let's fast forward to today where we have the Federal Families First Act which has radically changed federal support for out-of-home care by nearly eliminating funding for group homes and residential treatment centers. And this is on the basis of really an unsubstantiated assumption that foster care and other out-of-home placements are kind of somehow inherently bad. There's no evidence. They don't produce any, any empirical evidence for this sweeping assessment. They just say foster care is bad. And you can watch some videos of, of them doing presentations on this. The problem, of course, 
is that sometimes children, particularly those who've been seriously abused, need uh, foster care, particularly these more structured settings that the bill eliminates uh, that are unfunded by this federal bill to rebuild their mental strength. Uh, You know, places like group homes and residential treatment, because those are often the best fit for particular children at particular stages of their development. And yes, it's unfortunate that sometimes we need foster care and other out-of-home placements, but the reality is sometimes we need that resource to protect children. So to me, the overarching question is always, why have privately held family foundations basically been deciding what our child welfare policies and procedures and practices should be in this country for the last half century? You know, like, where is the public and public policy? This is still a democracy, so far anyway, and to me, policy direction should be made by our elected representatives in consultation with the managers who actually know the business and are being held accountable in some way for how well the programs are run. And we recognize they're not always being held accountable as well as we would like, but we'll get to that in a minute. But for now, just looking at this from, say, a management perspective, which is my general starting point, foundations are really in a poor position to be doing this policy work because they're so far removed from the operations of the day-to-day business of child protection. They're not in a position to listen to, let alone amplify, the voices of children or youth or families. And as a result, they're just not in touch with how their strategies have been working out on the ground and they're not accountable for how their visions have worked out in practice. I also have a lot of concerns about the way these foundations have gone about these initiatives. Uh, As I'll talk about in a minute, the foundations have promoted an unsupported and really unhelpful allegation that child protection workers are arrogant and disrespectful towards the families they serve, not knowledgeable about how their clients' cultures affect their approach to raising their children, and basically racist. And again, these critics have not produced any empirical evidence to support the claim that workers are like this. In fact, in my many years of experience, I won't tell you how many, they just aren't. There's a few bad actors, of course, and you, you need to counsel them out of the business. But by and large, caseworkers are there for the right reasons. And if in some ways they're racially biased, they want to know about it, they want to fix it. Uh, and, you know, they know a lot about how to work with families. In addition, these foundations have just failed to change course when research develops and it's piled up showing that these initiatives were not producing results regarding their major goal of family engagement. And they've also been responsible for a growing number of high-profile child deaths. And finally, these initiatives have been founded on a, once again, unsubstantiated and ultimately, in this case, unsupportable assumption that adults accused of maltreating their children will engage in child protection services voluntarily. It hasn't happened. And it won't ever happen because, hey, who wants to have child protection meddling in their lives? Just It always helps me to think about these policies or practices in terms of adults. So let's say a person was accused of or had a history of assaulting an adult. So this person is known to be a person who assaults adults. And would we give them the option of voluntarily working with law enforcement? Of course not. Most people would consider that proposition to be preposterous. So... You know, it's sort of like I rob a store and the policeman shows up and say, hey, would you like to work with us? I don't think so. So why do we think this is a good idea when it comes to children? 
I think it's because of the obvious. Children don't have a voice in the process, and these big foundations have a very, very loud voice. So as Elizabeth Bartholet and others have shown, these policies and practices heavily favor family preservation, which means in plain English, keeping children with their bio parents as long as possible and returning them to fo- from foster care as fast as possible. And the cumulative effect of these approaches has shifted child welfare far, far away from its original core mission, which is to operate in the best interest of the child. And naturally, Bartholet and I aren't the only ones to notice this or document it. As I've referenced in other blogs and uh, in other podcasts, some child welfare heavyweights have been raising the alarm on these practices for a good 20 years, if not longer. You'll see in our blogs references to articles by Ronald Hughes, Judith Rikus, Frank Vandervoort, Viola Von Eden, and Catherine Piper as well. And in one of these articles, Vandervoort and Von Eden asked about differential response. He said, how did a practice with so little empirical foundation become so widespread? And their conclusion was the same as mine. It's because of Casey Family Programs, which invested $197 million on differential response since about 2010, according to their own website, including $5.3 million in Minnesota. And Von Eden and Vandervoort observed that, hey, in a field where there's almost no flexible money and which leans progressive anyway, this kind of resource can tip the balance. And just so, you know, there's other people in the field. For example, there's two forensic interviewers named Everson and Rodriguez. And forensic interviewing, of course, is a subset of child welfare practice, a very specialized one. And they noticed this own tr- this trend in their their own specialized part of child welfare. And they said that over time, over time, they said the question has changed from to the child. The question to the child has changed from saying, tell me what happened so I can help you to now it's proved to me that you were abused. So that's kind of a good way to summarize how it looks to the child. I've often been puzzled by about by why is it that progressives have emphasized family preservation to such a degree that it becomes harmful to children? Why isn't there more balance here? Catherine Piper, for example, has demonstrated, she's shown in the research that no more than one-third of families can be assigned to differential response or family assessment uh, here without putting high-risk cases in a low-risk program and often with tragic consequences. But in Minnesota, currently, we, reass- we assign 62% of cases to family assessment, nearly double the recommended amount. And as a result, clearly, Children are getting harmed and even killed, so much so that 13 states out of the 35 or so that started doing family assessment have stopped doing their version of differential response, of family assessment or differential response, because too many kids are getting killed. My answer to the question is, why do they do this, is that progressive foundations are trying to right the wrongs of racism by building in policies and practices that reduce the number of children being removed from families of color, especially African-American and indigenous families. But they're doing this in such a way that they have lost track of the mission of child welfare again, which is the safety and well-being of the child. Sure, reducing the number of families of color in child protection is an important goal and one that we all share. 
But as we've argued in detail in another recent podcast, there's no way to do this that doesn't involve major upgrades to the quality of management of child welfare programs. Uh, and they, they just aren't that well managed right now. It would take a huge investment and a major mindset change. Policies on high aren't going to get racial disparities out of the system. It's not going to get the job done. And, you know, as I said, I've talked about this at length, but in brief, you need a comprehensive, robust management program uh, to actually make a dent in biased decision-making within child welfare programs that's much more extensive than changing a policy or doing anti-racism training. And we just aren't committed to do that kind of management improvement generally in child welfare. So I hope the takeaway you get from this is that we need a new movement to counteract this 50-year-old movement. We need a new movement to take the job of child welfare policy making away from foundations. And let's, let's be honest. These foundations are wealthy. They're distant from the operations. They're mostly white. And they generally think they know better than the people who are doing the work. And unlike the, child, the children who are in the system, they never suffer the consequences of their bad decisions. So we need to give child welfare back to the democratic American system that with all of its flaws has ultimately got at least some measure of accountability and some levers built in that we can pull so that we at least have a chance of making the necessary improvements, whereas we have no chance of convincing the Casey Foundations and Edna McConnell-Clark to do something differently. We have no voice there. Well, it's like many aspects of our public life these days. This really comes down to citizens getting involved to make government do its job better. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our e-brief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.